Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. And joining me is my co-host co-host mr steve ovens welcome in sir good evening from an area that can't determine whether it's winter or spring yeah yet. welcome to the dakotas that just happens around <laughs> here but you know what in just a couple more weeks we're going to be done with the below 40 crap and we'll be into our three months of summer and hopefully summer the 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 uh, sunniest day of summer will fall on a weekend this year and i can go water skiing and i'll be right with the world yeah, we're we're currently hunkering down. We're expecting another good dumping of snow on uh, Thursday. My wife's work is already preemptively closed. Two out of ten don't recommend. <laughs> Wouldn't recommend at all. But you know what I would recommend, Steve? doing the feedback i would recommend doing the feedback unless you have a question in which case i wouldn't do the feedback i'd send feedback in to live at asknoahshow.com hello all right our first email comes in from dennis dennis writes in and says hi no and steve i'm looking for an open source solution to transcribe our church audio sermons into a pdf do you know of any free or inexpensive solution thanks so steve do you know of any uh, free and open source uh voice to text I don't really. I The last time that I had to do something like this, uh, I cheated and I used like the dictation in um, in Google Chrome. Yes. Because they have that thing. And I basically just turned on the audio and stuck it beside my mic. <laughs> so voice to text, VTT or STT, speech to text, uh, automatic uh, speech recognition, ASR, any of these, they're all kind of the same thing. And there are definitely some open source things out there. I have not had terrible, uh, great luck with them. So the first one is actually put out by Mozilla. It's called Deep Speech. Um, it's okay. And the, the thing about Deep Speech is it's available on GitHub. It's open source. It's produced by Mozilla, all the things. But, you know, one of the things that you're you're really going for is accuracy, particularly if you're trying to transcribe something like sermon notes. You don't necessarily know the vernacular to which the pastor is going to use. Now, that's going to be a little bit easier insofar as at least it's your if your pastor is doing a good job. Anyway, he's talking at an eighth grade level so that everybody can understand it. This falls off a cliff when you start getting into like the legal realm or the medical realm where there's a whole bunch of vernacular that isn't used in day to day language. Interestingly enough. Steve's suggestion of just using the Google engine works great. So we'd be remiss if we didn't say you might check that out, but you might take a look at deep speech. You might also take a look at something called Caldi, K-A-L-D-I, which is an open source speech recognition software. It's licensed under the Apache license. It works on Mac OS, Windows, and of course, Linux. They probably one of the oldest ones started back in 2009. Um, and then there's a couple of other ones. I haven't used them, so I'm, I'm hesitant to mention them on the show. But uh, we'll have links for both of those in the show notes uh, at podcast.asknoahshow.com. You can take a look at those and see what works. And if nothing else, I, I would invite you to head over to uh, Google and, and, and as much as I hate to say it, use the cloud-based service in part because, and I want to emphasize this part, if you had all of the money and the time and the effort and the resources in the world, the proper way to do this would be to train a model. So if you've ever used something like Dragon Naturally Speaking, you would train the Dragon model first, and then it would learn to recognize the way that you pronounce words, and then it becomes very accurate. Google has the advantage of being trained by everybody all the time, and so it works right off the bat. Um, so you could, could you get there with local software and open source? Absolutely you could. Is it going to be a bit of a challenge, and is it going to take a lot of legwork? Yes, it will. Our second email comes in today from Nate. Nate writes in and says, Hey, Noah and Steve, I've been listening to Ask Noah now for a few weeks airing, and somebody else may have already brought this up. But regarding the church that was having trouble doing bill pay on their bank's website after changing ISPs, I wanted to share something similar I've experienced in the past. I frequently had sites not load or refuse a connection purely due to being connected to a VPN. For 
various reasons, some legitimate and some annoyingly unnecessary, many websites protect themselves with services from things like Cloudflare and Akamai. Or on their own, they set up a blacklist. These types of services typically don't just have an IT blacklist, but also an anonymous system number blacklists that you probably know ASNs are used in a broader gateway protocol or BGP, and an ISP are going to have an ASN managing BGP entries. If the new ISP is small enough, which it sounds like this may very well be, or newly established, an ASN may not be trusted yet because there isn't a long-standing or positive reputation for that ASN. Could also be that the ISP brought up the ASN from another entity or perhaps was assigned to it after another organization went defunct and such has a history of nefarious activities originating from it, causing it to be blocked. And of course, hopefully not the case. Some customers of that ISP are actively and currently doing notorious things for which the ISP and the ASN is to be blocked. If that's the case, this is the same issue I encounter regularly with commercial VPN services. The error Messages will get something to the effect that the ASN I'm connecting from is blocked. In my case, it would be the ASN of the VPN service. Regardless of what ISP I might be using at the moment, I would explain why it worked at home for a listener on a different ISP, but not at the church ISP. This is indeed the case for the church. Pressuring the bank's IT system to remove the block, whether it be ASN or IP, is probably the only recourse. Besides, of course, finding a new bank. But if the current bank employs a set of block lists from services like Cloudflare, it's likely to encounter the same problems as the other bank, as many use the, these services to protect their network. I hope this helps. Not sure if somebody probably has already mentioned this in the week since. Love the show. Kind regards, Nate. So a couple things. So first of all, I believe that church did get their issue sorted out. I would also take a point to point out, Steve, you've now gone through Kevin Mitnick's book, uh, Ghost in the Wire, right? Yep. Loved it. So I did too. And I started down the path of trying to be a little bit more conscious of my online footprint, those sorts of things. And as part of that, I set up a wireless network at my house that tunnels straight to private internet access. And so I thought, let's see how, how well I can live on the internet, which is a web browser, my password manager, and a connection to a VPN service. Meaning that every time I open Firefox, it's like I'm a brand new person and I feel fresh and refreshed and new. So for the most part, works just fine. But as this, as this emailer points out, when I go to do certain banking activities or certain things where fraud and, and abuse is rampant, I find myself up against all sorts of roadblocks. Now, the Google ones aren't such a big deal. I just answer the caption. I've gotten really good at identifying traffic lights and crosswalks and motorcycles and buses. But when it comes to things like I'm trying to get something done on a bank and the bank just flat out says you can't connect to this or today I, had, I found out the USPS site won't let me connect from a PAA and track a package, those sorts of things are really frustrating. And so I have a, a temporary workaround. I'm not super happy with it, but it, it is what it is. Since I never want the originating point to be my house, I have inside of a data center, a small little instance of PFSense, I VPN into that, and that becomes my normal person connection to the world where I look like a normal person. Of course, the problem with this is I have to continually pay to have a point of presence to be able to get out from. And my long-term plan is to just work out something with a business or a church or something like that. Say, can I throw this thing here so I can have a point of presence to come out to the world and look like a normal person? And it gets me there. But I think the longer term answer here is what do we tell ISPs or what do we tell banks or what do we tell services when we say, hey, we insist on being private and being able to connect through a VPN service to be able to access your stuff. I don't want to go through, you know, the hotel's banking or the hotel's, you know, public Wi-Fi crap. I, I want to be protected from a VPN. So honor that that respect. And I know you've run into not maybe the same issues, but similar issues insofar as you just don't do banking on your phone. Nope, I do not. I do no banking on mobile devices as a, just a flat out rule. My wife and I both actually, um, as an aside, I don't know if you've seen, there's been a rash of these um, iPhone thefts recently. And yes, and they if, watch the pin and then they steal it at a bar or whatever. Exactly. And people are getting their bank accounts and stuff like that drained. And I, I say, that's really unfortunate for them. They shouldn't have been doing mobile banking. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I have sympathy for the, for the average person out there who doesn't think this stuff through, but yeah. Uh, getting back to the VPN issue, I constantly uh, am bumping into little paper cuts like this because when I travel, so not now, but when I travel normally, I'm all over the place and I do not connect to things from the, I won't even connect my Plex server from a hotel Wi-Fi. I turn the VPN on um, and it, 
it's just no offense to Noah. I'm sure he does great work securing any of the uh, hotel Wi-Fi that he has, but I don't have that level of trust in any other hotel. So I don't trust that things are set up properly or not. I've been at hotels where I've run I've run an IP scan and found like I'm on the same network as 250 other people and I can ping them. Well, and that, that here's the thing. Go, even hmm. if I do my job right, even if I t- set everything up exactly the way I'm supposed to, What's to stop me from setting up a mirrored port on a switch and capturing all of your traffic? You know, yeah. just just because I just because there's just because there is best practice, even if it's implemented, doesn't stop a nefarious actor who has the right access. I forget me for a second. What about the 16 year old kid that I employ and I send over there and say, "Hey, go replace this access point." And he goes, "Okay." And so he shows up and he crawls up in the ceiling and he gets out there and starts looking around, starts thinking to myself, self, you know what I could do? I could log into the switch and mirror a port and I could see all the traffic that's coming through here. That would be real interesting, wouldn't it? And all of a sudden we have a problem. So I would tell you, you're smart to always, you know, trust the encryption. Don't trust the guy. Don't trust the IT guy. Yep. Although it all it all boils down to uh, you have to trust an ISP somewhere, unfortunately. So, you know. Yeah, it, that's it is true. What it is. Yeah, that's true. But there's a. I would say that your threat vector is much higher, much, much. Oh my goodness! Come to think of it, exceptionally higher from the network that you know absolutely nothing about, and oh by the way, has absolutely no allegiance or or owners to you, as opposed to the ISP, which at a very minimum is being held to some standard of hey, you know, we have a a, a security center, we're SOC two compliant, that kind of thing. I mean, so at least there is a standard, whereas opposed to and they're getting better about this, but, you know, public Wi-Fi, it's, I mean, I've literally seen it to where they run over to Best Buy and they grab a Linksys router and they plug it in and go, there we go. We have guest Wi-Fi. You know how we know? Because I named the SSID. I put guest, G-U-E-S-T, guest. Then they know it's the guest Wi-Fi. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we could go on about this for a while, but I think we should move on to the next one. Our third email comes in from John. John writes in and says, hey, no one, Steve, I sent this to AltaSpeed email a few weeks ago. Might have gotten missed, but I listen to the Ask Noah show every week, and you guys do some of the most experienced technologists I've ever heard. You provide a balanced viewpoint with a number of technological issues, and this is helpful when planning and making decisions. With that said, I need help on several issues. One, since I switched over to Linux, I've had problems with the scan network feature on my HP MVP, and then he gives a a model number. I have a NAS, and it previously worked, but now it's stopped. I'm trying to figure out what solution exists that allow me to scan directly to an SFTP share somehow. Really want to be able to scan my documents to a PDF in mass and be able to sort them digitally when needed. I found that networking, air quotes intended, using FFTP, SFTP shares is much easier than configuring Samba or even NFS shares. It's what had been impending, impeding my adoption to Linux up until a few years ago when I decided to learn SSH and SFTP. The moment I discovered that SSH is not only a secure method for getting a terminal on a, on a remote machine, but also for networking, and that the tech basically works the same way whether it was sitting in the next room or the next continent, it was my true love. My home is basically SFTP networked, and that said, I'm at a loss for how I can scan my docs and have them set up on my file server. I do have the scan to email method, but not sure if I want to set that up local only scanning on the NAS. Any guidance would be appreciated. Secondly, I'm running network cable throughout my house with the goal of either enhancing or replacing my existing ring system. I would like some guidance on how to run the cable down walls. I'm willing to do it, but I don't want to damage anything, so I figured I'd ask for guidance before tackling the project. The goal is to get my cameras and thermostat on a separate IoT network rather than my actual network. And finally, I'm looking for a system for remote administration. Like a few callers a few weeks ago, I've been using I've been using Voltold that the default tech support person for my family, congregation, etc. So periodically, myself, I find myself supporting different systems for family and friends. And the TeamViewer pricing model is too expensive. I'm often providing free tech support, so I can't justify the license for a TeamViewer business license. Are there any more cost-effective products that allow for remote administration? I was experimenting with running Remina and XRDP for Linux-based systems, but I couldn't figure out how to configure Remina so that the run connection through the established SSH connection thus securing the connection. I was also trying to set it up so that I could use my key-based SSH authentication, then run RDP connection and have it passwordless. Lastly, <laughs> I owe I love oven mitts for Steve. I guess I'm basically saying that from time to time, just as a level one technical person needs a level two or level three tech support, what are your rates for consulting? Can you get into my system if needed? How does that work? I'm on Eastern time, mountain time. Be safe, guys. Have a great 2023, John. So let's work our way backwards, Steve. If you were looking for a way to remotely administrate a machine to help out your family and friends, what would you use? 
So I have two go. Well, I have one go to and one that I'm starting to investigate. So my go to is uh, Rust Desk. I, I particularly like this open source software. And as you can imagine, if you care about what language it's written in, it's written in Rust. Uh, the only reason why I would consider moving away from something like Rust Desk, which is cross platform and all the things, is because I've started to work with immutable operating systems, and that's somewhat of a problem. Mm. So uh, there are flat packs for other solutions. Uh, one of the ones that I'm starting to investigate is called AnyDesk. Now, this one is not open source. Mm -hmm. uh, it might be open core. It's one of those, it's free for home use. And if you are using it for X number of users and all the sort of want to unlock other features, you, you pay for that. Um, the If you are interested in some of the more technical sides of things, when you have an immutable operating system, you have to install software either into the the RPM OS tree or whatever, whatever version of immutable operating system and then basically um, reboot to change into that image. Or when that is not easily accessible, you have to use something like Flatpak or Snap, which doesn't actually mess with the uh, read-only section of the of the file system. So mm -hmm. in my case, the distro that I've, I've been putting on people's laptops that's immutable only runs with uh, Flatpaks. And there is some problem with Rustdesk. They've got an open issue saying that they're, they're having problems with Flatpak and Rustdesk. Rust desk. So that's what I would do. What would you do? I like Rust Desk. I think that's a great option. I can see where he's going with uh, Remina and XRDP. XRDP, once set up, works flawlessly, but it does take a little bit of tweaking to get working. As far as tunneling it over an SSH connection, you can use it. There's, there's what's called a poor man's VPN. And essentially what you can do is you can create a connection into another box and then say, hey, just tunnel all my traffic over the SSH connection to this other box. And that should allow you to, you would be able to establish an RDP connection and then it would, it would, it would run over the encrypted connection over the SSH encrypted connection. Um, what I do, like the way that I remotely control the computer tonight to get back to the studio and start the recording and start the stream and all that kind of thing. I'm using simple hope. It's not open source. It's not free. It's in fact, it's kind of expensive insofar as it's like 300 bucks for a license. However, comma, it's self-hosted. It runs on Linux. Once you buy the product, you own it for life. There's no, you obviously you'll pay for upgrades at a, at a highly reduced rate, but if you don't, it will continue to work forever. Um, and it works on every machine I've ever used it. Ever. Android, Windows, Linux, every version of Mac OS, you name it. The other thing I would throw out there just as a, Hey, I need something is, Chrome Remote Desktop is not bad. Um, have a church that we support that uses it, and I was a little off-put at first, but I have to say, it's first of all, it's nice because a lot of people already have Chrome installed, and so just adding the remote support plugin for Chrome is is pretty get darn simple, and then it just gives you a code, and you're able to type that code in, and then it connects you, and it just works. Um, the only problem I've had with the Chrome one is if you're going into Mac systems, you have to go into the security and privacy settings and tell it specifically to allow access to the display and access the keyboard and mouse. And even then, it's like 80-20. Sometimes 80% of the time it'll work and 20% of the time it doesn't. But, so with the with the mm -hmm. Chrome uh, stuff, I don't know. I haven't used it in a few years since I discovered Rust Desk. But mm -hmm. the problem that I had with that is it would eventually not time out, but essentially reprompt the person on the other end if you were doing a long running session. And so mm. for me, that was not good because I would be helping my mother-in-law and I'd be like, oh, you can just go about doing your business. And then I'd actually have to call her <laughs> on the phone and be like, can you go click a button I so that I can down. continue doing my thing? I think they've resolved that because I watched I watched our tech director do like a, a three church services in a row. Um, so it at least goes for seven, eight hours before it times out. Um, so I, you know, either they fix that, either it's a setting or, um, uh, yeah. So anyway, it, it's just an option. It's free, it's available, and it just it's, it requires installing an extension. So a couple of options for you to give a shot to. Out of all those, I'd probably start with Rustdesk and I'd work my way backwards just from the standpoint of if it's free and open source and does what you want it to do, why look elsewhere? 775 
You can, or, oh my goodness, 855-450-6624 you can, or live at asknoshow.com. You can call, you can email. We'd love to have you join us. Our fourth email comes in from Corey. Corey writes in and says, hi, Noah and Steve. Uh, as to my question for my, oh, you know what? I just realized we have to, we have uh, a couple others to answer for, uh, for John here. So, okay. So we got remote desktop as far as running network cable. Network cable is, is fairly simple insofar as low voltage doesn't carry the risk of dying. So you've got that going for you. Um, most modern stud finders will tell you if there's AC wire in the wall. And so you'd want to be aware of that. Obviously don't go drilling into walls that have AC wire. What I always tell people, if they're if it's the first time they've ever run cable before, I always tell them, start with a coat hanger. Stick it through the sheetrock so you get a hole and put your Cat 5 cable or Cat 6 cable through the hole and into the, into the stud space. And typically what you'll do is you'll go from the basement up or from the attic down and your choice, which, which is easier for you to get to. So if your basement is capped off and you've got hard, you got sheetrock on your ceilings, go into your attic and come down. If your basement is open, you can go up. But the idea is if you measure carefully, you should be able to drill a hole through your floor and come up into the stud space into the wall. And with enough careful measuring, you, you'll be able to come up in there. If you mess up, it's not the end of the world. It just means that if, unless you have like hardwood floor or something, then I guess it'd probably be kind of an expensive boo-boo. But if you're, if you're careful and you measure, you'll be able to come up in the stud space. And then once the, once you've threaded the wire in there, you can poke a hole from the other side and cut your box out. And so essentially just put the wall plate up to it and trace around it and then cut on the inside. And then there's there's they have low voltage boxes that will go in. They almost have like little wings and you'll tighten the screws and the little wings flip out and grab onto the sheetrock. And that gives you something to mount your RJ45 keystone jack to. Um, so there's a number of videos on the Internet that can help with that as well. And of course, if you have any specific directed questions, let me know. But my my my. My 30-second radio answer is go get started with it. Go try it. Go sit down and, and kind of measure and say, hey, I want a cable here. Uh, where would that wall be downstairs? And do some measuring from an outside wall, that sort of stuff. And you start to get your head wrapped around, oh, this kind of makes sense. It's, But it's one of those things, once you get into it, you'll find it's actually a little bit more straightforward than you're thinking. As for your scanning question, so I have supported and sold HP printers since 2009, since UltaSpeed has been in business. And in Almost every one of those circumstances, when we're talking about scanning, we're scanning to a Samba share. I don't know why, I don't know what your rationale for SFTP being easier than Samba to set up. In my experience, Samba is one, one like three lines and one config file away, or if you're running TrueNAS, a click away from creating a Samba share. But the other thing is, Every business under the planet is using Samba shares, so HP is going to test the ever-loving bejeebers out of scanning to Samba shares because that's the way that most businesses are going to do it. So I would, my first thing is I would beg you to reconsider not using a Samba share. But if we're gonna, if we if we stick past that and say okay, for whatever reason we don't we don't want to go that route, we want to use F SFTP. I'm not. I guess I don't quite understand how switching from Windows to Linux would have affected the printer. The printer should be talking directly to the NAS without a client involved, even if it, SFTP or Samba. It's just talking to a server. So troubleshooting steps would be first: Can you access that SFTP share from your computer? So typing SFTP full colon slash slash IP address. See if you can access it. Second question: Can I write to it? So try and create a file. And then the third thing is inside of the HP setup, if you log into the web interface, not, the, not, not, hear me, not the on-screen display, but the web interface, if you go into it, you should be able, there's usually an option when you create the share to test the share from the printer. And so you'll go into the HP web configurator and tell it, here's where my share is, here's where I want you to scan this stuff to, and then usually there's a little button that'll say test share, and it'll try to reach out to that directory and see if it can touch so, and, and write into it. And if it can, you're set, and if not, then you're not set. I would not use email for two reasons, uh, three reasons. One is it's not encrypted. Two is it requires it leaving your house and going out to the internet and then coming back in, which is just silly. And then the third, the biggest one, is in order to stay under the size limit for mail attachments, oftentimes the scanner will drastically reduce the quality when it's being sent over email. So for those three reasons, I would not email the file. I would, I would have it as you're thinking of doing, have it go straight to your NAS. Um, I just think, I think I might do that over Samba instead of SFTP. Have you ever had issues with SFTP, Steve? I've never tried to scan to SFTP. So 
that that's a new one to me to be honest with you i i might if i was hell-bent on doing sftp i would probably do an sftp mount to my desktop where i was uh, you know and essentially have the the scanner scan to my local desktop just like mm. you would drop the the file there and just have the yes yeah, that'll work. So give those a shot, Corey, and then let us know uh, what works, what doesn't. 855-450-NOAH or live at asknoahshow.com. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Hurakok asks in the chat room at geeklab.ninja and says, I have two or three cameras I'd like to display at one time in full screen, then after 10 or so seconds, move to the next one, simply flip through the camera feeds. What should I look at? Uh, the software you're looking for is called uh, RPISERV, R-P-I-S-U-R-V. And it is a Raspberry Pi image that is specifically designed for doing dedicated display streams of uh, video cameras. And so you can give it the credentials to your camera. It works with any ONVIF camera, and you can set it up to do whatever you want. You can do the traditional split-screen multiplexing. You can have it cycle through. You can have it show just one. Uh, whatever you're looking for, we use this all the time. Um, in fact, I think all but a few of our security camera installations are using Raspberry Serve um, because they want some sort of a monitoring station. And this is what we use. And it works flawlessly. So I'll have a link for you to their uh, GitHub at uh, github.com slash SvenVD slash RPISERV. It'll be available in the show notes podcast.asknowashow.com. Steve, anything to add for uh, security cameras? Hmm. No, that's a pretty good recommendation unless you need something more fancy. And then we're talking about a popular software called Blue Iris, which is not open source and runs on Windows. So we're not even going to talk about it. You know, so Blue Iris, um, Blue Iris is really more of like an NVR solution, right? So it does like recording and all of that. Um, I would put Blue Iris on like up there with something like a zone minder. I would say those are kind of apples to apples. If you're just talking about displaying the cameras, you're not talking about recording them, mobile access, any of that. I think that's where RPISERV comes in as more of a one-to-one. Hmm. So uh, anyway, we'll have uh, links available to you, podcast.asknoahshow.com. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of March 5th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. Armbian 23.02 has been released with the Linux kernel 6.1 LTS, and it brings improvements for the Orange Pi, the Rock Pi, Raspberry Pi, and others. Nitrix 2.7 is out and debuts its new Maui shell, along with a KDE Plasma 5.27 LTS upgrade and the 6.1.15 Licorix kernel. The Licorix kernel is an alternative kernel for distros that is patched to focus on providing a more appropriate configuration for desktop, multimedia, and gaming workloads. FFmpeg 6.0, codenamed Von Neumann, has been released with support for a few new formats as well as a bunch of new encoders. GTK 4.10 has been released. The KDE team has announced the availability of 5.27.2, Canonical has announced support for the 4th gen Intel Xeon scalable processor family on Ubuntu Pro 22.04. The Linux Mint project leader Clem has announced a new list of features coming to 21.2 that include better Flatpak support, the latest version of the XFCE desktop, and more. LibreOffice 7.5.1 has been released and includes the long-awaited light dark mode switch and fixes more than 90 bugs. The Wine Dev release 8.3 is now out. And Linus Torvalds has released the Linux kernel 6.3 release candidate 1 for testing, which brings about normal regular updates, additional Rust code, and more. The Linux Foundation has released a new report measuring the economic value of open source and found that companies perceive the greatest benefits of open source software as cost savings, faster development, open standards, and interoperability. And the Linux Foundation and the Open Grid Alliance have announced the signing of a Memorandum of Understanding for formal collaboration to supporting the emerging edge infrastructure, along with 5G networks and billions of IoT devices. The Linux distro OpenSUSE has begun enforcing kernel lockdown when secure boot is enabled. While this is more secure, it is also creating issues for many users. According to comments on OpenSUSE's mailing list, Microsoft apparently refused to continue signing OpenSUSE's bootloader shim unless kernel lockdown mode was enabled. So beginning with kernel 6.2.1, 
OpenSUSE's Tumbleweed will enable kernel lockdown whenever SecureBoot is also enabled. As a result, users that rely on NVIDIA drivers on the fast-moving Tumbleweed now have a choice to make. Either disable SecureBoot or manually sign those modules themselves so that the kernel will load them. The APT27 hacking group, aka Iron Tiger, has prepared a new Linux version of its SysUpdate custom remote access malware, allowing the Chinese cyber espionage group to target more services used in the enterprise. According to a new report by Trend Micro, the hackers first tested the Linux version in July of 2022. However, only in October of 2022 did multiple payloads begin circulating in the wild. The new malware variant is written in C++ using the SEO library, and its functionality is very similar to Iron Tiger's Windows version of SysUpdate. And lastly, the team behind MOSS, China's first chat GPT-like software, has announced that it will become an open-source program once more public testing has been completed. Canonical has issued an official edict. The approved Ubuntu remixes must remove Flatpak support as part of their next release. Quote, no official variant shall support Flatpak anymore. Canonical has its own official cross-platform packaging format, Snap. And as of version 2304, only Snap is to be built in. The Flatpak plugin for the software store will also be removed. So... This is part of Canonical's effort to continue to move forward with Snap. Now, I have to say, I, I, I struggle with this. I really do. Because so part of it is the flavors, the whole idea of flavors is to bring variety. Not everybody wants to do everything the same way. And so when Canonical comes out and says, we have an idea of the best way to produce a Linux distribution. That is Ubuntu proper. And the whole reason that there's only one Ubuntu proper is because that, and that alone, is Canonical's implementation of what they think the best way to produce a Linux distribution and provide it to human beings. And they've done that for years and years and years. So when we start looking at things like universal packaging, the whole idea of flavors was to have a variety of different ideas. You have different desktops, you have different environments, you have different user preferences, you have different user bases, you have different goals. And so depending on what those goals are and depending on what those differences are, they build those flavors differently. Well, you look at some of the distributions like Mint. They ditched Snap and they replaced it with Flatpak. Both Linux Lite, Zinc, uh, have neither format pre-installed, although Zinc offers Nala and Debgit instead. Zoran OS, which is basically designed as an Ubuntu flavor for people who are coming from traditional, you know, Windows or Mac OS systems, installs both systems. And the paid edition of Zoran OS also includes dozens of pre-installed Flatpak apps, which is why the uh, the the disk space occupies like 30 gigs. And so the bottom line is that this whole idea of flavors leveraging the power of competing ideas and technology kind of goes out the window if you tell the flavors, hey, you're not allowed to leverage this particular technology. Now, Steve, I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on this. Are you a snap guy, a flat pat guy, or a screw it, I build it from Shorsh kind of guy? <laughs> well, I definitely... Hmm. I don't build packages manually by source. Uh, I would say that if my distro of choice happens to grab the tarball and do that for me, then that's just fine by me. Uh, as for which one, largely I'm, I was definitely very agnostic to this in the past. I've, I've sort of moved more towards Flatpak, mm. largely just because of my, my real love for, for endless OS and they have Flatpaks as the front and center. I don't really have a problem with this really I don't think it's unreasonable for, for Canonical to say, you know, you're using our infrastructure mm -hmm. and this particular, because they're not saying you can't install Flatpaks, it's you? just you, you don't have them by default. And this is kind of our answer. And they've got a, uh, you know, some people like to say strategy tax. I think that's a little bit too harsh. Like, I, I really don't think that it's a tax as much as just like, we built this technology we, we would like the adoption to continue. And so as part of the Ubuntu brand, like the default here is Snap. And from a, a support perspective, you have to actually limit or shield yourself from various support things because a lot of people don't understand, for example, 
speaking specifically about Ubuntu, they don't understand that, for example, Univ- Universe is not supported by Canonical, mm. right? It's just a bunch of packages that are thrown in there. So if you are also pulling from Flatpak and Canonical doesn't or can't uh, maintain any kind of quality around the Flatpaks that are being installed, then then having those available by default puts undue burden on a support request, right? Well, You're- yeah, I Go mean, ahead. well, so there's the support aspect. The other part of that is like there is a technological merit question to be asked here right so there is a there's a fairly decent argument to be made that snaps are a technically superior packaging format okay so first of all um you so start from it with canonical's perspective so they have this operating system that they've built and they have worked for years to try to get snaps to work as well as they have and it's not just the technical aspect they actually went out and poked people that were in industry and said hey come build a snap of that let's show you how to do it went to developers and said hey when you publish software here's how you do it now a problem with the packages in and of themselves is they don't update with the package manager. So when you run apt update or apt get update, it's not going to update your snaps or your flat packs. Now they worked around that with snap by having it update in the background, which leads to another interesting problem because I absolutely have clients that go, I clicked on the Firefox icon and it's not launching. Wait, 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 wait. there it is. You know, that absolutely happens. And so, and like you said, they're not stopping anybody from installing flat packs. So you can put it in there easily enough. And on the Flatpak side, you can manually update Flatpak. You can use tools inside of the graphical interface to update Flatpak, but you're also going to have to include OS tree to handle all of the OS updates. So I I, I legitimately believe there is a, a merit aspect to this, but the question then becomes, and I would ask you this at live at asknoahshow.com, was the decision by Canonical chosen on merit alone of Snap as the universal packaging format, or is it a function of not built here. And this is what you're seeing on the internet, right? There's a lot of people that are coming out and saying, well, the only reason that Canonical doesn't want to do this is because it wasn't built by them. And I don't think that's a fair shake at all. I think Canonical is largely trying to focus on internet of things and trying to focus on the large corporate sectors. And guess what? Those people are not primarily desktop Linux users. Rather, they are people that are using Linux on servers. And guess what Flatpak isn't able to do? Doesn't run on headless boxes, where a snap does. So I think there's legitimately some, I think there are legitimately some merit bases to snap. At the same time, I think back to 2014. And I put my head into where we were in 2014, debating the homegrown upstart with System D. And Canonical made a decision that at that time to follow what upstream Debian was doing and, frankly, what the rest of the Linux ecosystem was largely doing. Nine years later, I would argue Ubuntu and Canonical have greatly benefited from the work that's been done from the rest of the Linux ecosystem. And so the question must be asked, if you're looking at universal packaging system, packaging has been problematic on Linux for years, for years, okay, from Windows 95 on up. When I wanted to install something on Windows, I double-click on the EXE or I double-click on the MSI and I wait. On Mac, I double-click on the DMG and I drag the little app into the application folders. On Linux, on Linux, I download the tarball, I extract the contents, I navigate my terminal emulator to the extracted directory, then I configure the source code, then I make or compile the source code, and then I install the compiled code. And that's if I'm compiling from source. And then we tried to make it easier and get out of dependency hell with things like repositories and but eventually, then we wound up with a bunch of different package managers. So we looked for a universal packaging system, and we eff- effectively arrived on Flatpak, AppImage, or Snap. Well, Flatpak is great, and it works on every major distro that I've ever used, but at the process of obtaining and using software isn't exactly straightforward because you're going out to a separate site every time, downloading the software, and then you're double-clicking on it, and many of the software packages require some sort of directory, working directory for it to work in. And by default, it will just create the directory and wherever you are. And so if you just downloaded it and it's sitting in your downloads folder, now you have this app image in your downloads folder. If you've made any sort of configuration changes and you go to move that app image and it gets out of its little full working directory that it's created and you didn't move all of that with it, now you've lost your configuration. And so not exactly an ideal user experience. 
snaps largely when you click on something, you go to install something. Firefox, for example, on my laptop is installed as a snap package, works flawlessly. It takes a little bit to start up every once in a while, but it's great. Has the annoying little bug of Firefox is going to restart in 13 days. A little frustrating, but again, works fine. So that part of it, I think they've nailed. What I think they're missing here is the idea that Again, the rest of the Linux ecosystem is going a direction. So if you want to say, hey, you know what? It's really difficult. If we let this ship by default, then users don't know where they're pulling software from. If it's coming from Snap or if it's coming from Flatpak, updates are not graceful. Theming is not always flawless. So there, it poses a number of problems. I can understand where they're coming from. But I'd be interested in your thoughts. Was this decision by Canonical chosen purely off of the merit of Snap as a universal packaging format, or is it a function of not built here. You can find me at live at asknoahshow.com. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Ring is in the news again, this time for a privacy loophole. A gentleman had a Ring doorbell camera. Actually, he had 26 of them installed, but 21 of them, excuse me. He had 21 Ring cameras installed between his home inside of his home and his business. And what happened was he got a call from the police department and they said, hey, we're looking for security footage of potentially a drug deal that happened outside your house. And he said, I did not do any drug deals outside of my house. Oh, we know it was one of your neighbors. And he goes, okay, well, uh, what do you want from me? Well, we want that security footage. Okay. What hour? Uh, Between this time and this time, out your front door. Okay. So he goes and he downloads the security footage and he sends it over to the police on his own time of his own volition on his own dime. Gets them the footage they ask for. You would think that that would be good enough, but it's not. So they come knocking again. Hey, sir, we want 24 hours. So he starts thinking to himself, I have four cameras outside of my house. I have two cameras inside of my house and I have a bunch of cameras at my business. Just going through my ring account to go find all of those little 15 second clips, let alone download them, let alone find a way to transfer them all to the police. Get out of here. I'm not doing that. So he tells him no. So you would think, you would think that the police would say, oh, okay, well, it's his cameras. He paid for him. He set him up. It's his camera footage. If he doesn't want to share it, I guess that's on us. No. They go to a judge and they get a warrant. And the warrant is for every piece of recorded footage during the time frame from his ring account. And that totally includes the cameras that are in his house and the cameras that are his business, which had absolutely nothing to do with this crime that he's not even accused of committing. So he fights the warrant and says, I don't think that they should be able to do this. I didn't give them permission to go do this. And I helped him out to the extent that I could the first time. And if I really wanted to, I would have tried to help him the second time. But what they're asking for is unreasonable. Number one and number two, I don't think they should have the footage from my business or the inside of my house. And the judge said, "Mm, sorry, bub. If they request it and they have reasonable uh, suspicion to believe that a crime has been committed, then they're going to get the the evidence. And so that went forward. And his only saving grace in this whole situation was that during that 24 hours where he was where they were looking for this footage, the cameras on the inside of his house happened to have been disconnected because they're only armed when the alarm system is armed. So they only record and and capture footage and send it when the alarm system is, is armed. But past that, this guy wouldn't have had a chance. So I'm curious, Steve, what are what are your initial thoughts when you hear this? Well, I, I have two. I have, I have great sympathy for the the homeowner. I don't think that I don't think you should be compelled to to hand over footage via a warrant for something that doesn't even involve you. That's mm. I think that's particularly ridiculous. Like the the most I could see, and even then, as a libertarian, I find it egregious is. Maybe you could say for the two outside cameras or whatever outside cameras that mm-hmm. were pointing in that direction. Maybe you could make that argument for the greater good, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe. Um, so I have I have a, an instant recoil against what the police have allegedly done. Right. The other side of the the coin here is. I don't think you should be having cameras all over the place to begin with. If you don't want this sort of information to potentially leak, then you shouldn't store it in the first place. Mm. And so uh, I I follow that here. We don't have we don't have security cameras and we definitely would never have security cameras in the house. I don't care how much I want to know what my kids are doing. I'm going to get off my butt and go downstairs. Like mm-hmm. and, and if they can hide it in the 10 seconds it takes me to get down the stairs, then they probably earned the reprieve from getting in trouble. <laughs> So um, 
there one side of me says like you need to be aware of the the what you are putting like just like having a phone that could be potentially always on microphone or whatever you should not put any device like a camera or a webcam or anything like that in an area that you don't want to be filmed full stop that's fair so i take a slightly different approach insofar as i work in clinics that have cameras i work in schools that have cameras i work in uh, all sorts of places that you know to a degree they're public but you know in in a lot of ways they're not in a lot of ways really private things happen in some of those places and one of the conversations we absolutely have with clients and i would absolutely have with this audience is if you're going to capture footage should you be prevented from taking advantage of a technological innovation because somebody wants to abuse it. And of course, my answer to that is no. In the same way that I wish to, sometimes there is there are things that I want to communicate with my significant other, and I want the ability to set up an encrypted session, send an encrypted payload from me to them, have them read that, and then I want it all to go away because there doesn't need to be a permanent record of it, and I would like it to be secured on both ends. And I think that's a reasonable technological request being that the technology exists. At the same time, when it comes to cameras, I feel the same way. If I set up a, a Synology surveillance station, it supports encryption. So all of the recordings are going to be encrypted. So you can come over to my house and you can absolutely get your warrant and you can absolutely go confiscate my NVR that sits in my basement that has cameras both on the inside and the outside of my house. And you can go ahead and take that into some state crime lab and you knock yourself out trying to get out that footage. But at the end of the day, warrant or no warrant, it's going to require the encryption passphrase, which I don't know. I don't have it memorized. In the event that I ever need to go back and look at my footage, hopefully I'll be able to find the documentation. Not exactly sure where I put that right as I record this episode, but hopefully I'll be able to locate it if I ever need it. Um, if not, it's a 70, it's a 64 character alphanumeric and special character passphrase. So good luck. Um, that, that technology absolutely exists out there. But the reason that we bring this story to your attention is because the, we are, we are quickly approaching a point at where purchasing technology inside of a store, bringing it in and connecting it to your network can be as much of a threat to you as it is a benefit to you. And so being aware of what's happening and how this technology is being leveraged against its owners can be a really important tool in fighting that. Uh, a couple of quick mentions. We won't spend a lot of time on it, but Flatpak has a new experience. They're calling it the web experience. And the idea here is after Endless OS and uh, the GNOME board president, Robert McQueen, talked about the details of Flathub for 2023, one of the things they're looking at is the ability to browse the more than 2,000 apps on the, in, the, in the Flatpak universal binary format from 1,500 collaborators and providing around 700,000 app downloads every day. And so they have unveiled a new modern web experience that you can use uh, we'll have a link for you in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com, but it allows you to browse for apps, click on them, and then have native integration to begin installing those apps all right from a web browser. So I would invite you to check that out. And then Audacious, which is an audio player that has added a Pipewire plugin plus native Opus decoding support. And so 4.3 is out. It's a free audio player that releases updates and uh, various improvements. The highlights for 4.3 include the Pipewire output plugin, as well as a native Opus decoder plugin support for OGG, FLAC, audio streams, and support for reading embedded lyric tags, as well as the support for a new song length database uh, in the SID plugin. A couple of announcements before we get out of here. Scale is happening this coming weekend, so I'm going to record this episode. I'm doing Critical Thought tomorrow morning, and then my flight is out to California. I'll be there Thursday. I'll be there Friday. I'll be there Saturday. I'll be there Sunday, so I hope to see you at Scale. We'll be at the conference. We'll also take some time to get dinner, probably Saturday night. So if you're in the California area or you're willing to travel to the Los Angeles, California area, uh, hit me up. You can also join the Geek Lab, Geek Lab colon linuxdelta.com it's available on matrix or also known as element and you can join chat with us there southeast linux fest will be june 9th june 10th june 11th they have the dates locked in so you heard it here you can find all of this information podcast.asknoahshow.com we'll be broadcasting live and providing you live coverage from southeast linux fest as well as uh 
uh, just hanging out and participating in the hallway track. And of course, last but not least is Linux Fest Northwest. Now, there's a big change this year. Linux Fest Northwest is typically in April. They're pushing it back to October. I say that's a good thing because it gets us a little bit further out from scale. It gets us a little bit further out from Linux Fest Northwest and kind of puts it in its own little camp. So that'll be October 20th through 22nd. Yeah, huge thanks to Chris Fisher and Jupiter Broadcasting, as well as the Bellingham Technical College for putting that on and bringing that back. So that will be available again October 20th through 22nd. So we will be, as Noah, we'll have a presence at scale. We'll have a presence at Southeast Linux Fest. And of course, we'll have a presence at Linux Fest Northwest. Also coming up is our interview with Michael Dominic. So Steve, I'm going to let you speak to this a little bit, the only point of correction I wanted to add was in, in last week we talked about Gamer Radio, which is Michael Dominic's new podcast. I did not mention that Michael Dominic has been doing a show with over 500 episodes uh, called Coda Radio that he and Chris do every week. And so the, if you're looking for Michael's gaming experience, which so far as I understand is what precipitated this interview and how you two kind of got connected, uh, that would be Gamer Radio. And if you're interested in Mike's technical coding expertise that he's been doing for years, that would be Coder Radio available on Jupiter Broadcasting. And I think we have the date for that as the 21st. Is that right, Steve? That's correct. Uh, we'll let you know next week if that shifts a little bit. There's been a couple of sicknesses and stuff like that that have interrupted the the plans to get him on the air. Originally, he was supposed to be on the air tonight. So uh, we had problems. He had problems. But we'll get him on eventually. Yeah, it'll be a blast. And so you can send your questions live at AskNoahShow.com. You can also send them in the Geek Lab and tag them. Marlon, our question bot, will store them in his ridiculous memory. He is a world champion rememberer, and he remembers things and will store that. And so when we get to doing that interview, then you'll spit all those questions out. It'll be like you're at the interview, even if you're not at the interview. Um, and, of course, you can always join us live. Michael, I think, is joining us live on the 21st. And so if you want to ask your question directly to him, that's maybe even the best way to do it. Um, but all of that is coming up. It's going to be a busy next few months. Things in the Linux and open source world are flying, baby, and happy to be on the other side of COVID and happy to start getting back out and seeing all of you and hanging out and eating dinner and doing all the things that we've been doing throughout all the years. Now we get to go back to all of that. Steve, you put any thought into conferences you're attending? You typically do Ohio, and I know you have done self in the past. Any others? Um, I Well, now that I'm significantly closer to um, Linux Fest Northwest, I might try and make it to that one. I have to look to see what the cost out. I can usually wrangle one conference out of my uh, out of Red Hat. And so we'll see. I, I'm not sure which one I will do for sure this year, but I'm, I'm hoping to get to both the Southeast and Northwest. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. Yeah, I, I have there's a special place in my heart from self just from the standpoint that yeah, I think it is the I think it is the most community oriented of all of the Linux fests, just in the standpoint that it's all in one area. It doesn't spread out. It doesn't like there's a lot of the other conferences they'll splinter out. And in a way that can be a good thing, because if it starts to get too large, that can be really helpful to kind of splinter off into a bunch of small groups. One of the things that's nice about self is there's literally an L of a hallway and you're in one part of that L. All of the speaker rooms are along that L. All of the expo tables are along that L. We broadcast from that L. You run into all of the people in that L. Everybody eats in that L. All the food is in that L. So, like, the entire conference happens in a fairly small geographical area. And I I really like the layout of that. So, again, scale, March 9th through the 12th, Southeast Linux Fest, June 9th, June 10th, June the 11th, and Linux Fest Northwest, October 20th through the 22nd. I hope to see you at one of those three conferences this year. Music in my ears means we're out of time. Before we get out of here, we'll give you a couple of the basics. If you like the show, we invite you to head over to podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find all of the articles and references we use to create the show. Subscribe to us on Twitter. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. The show at Ask Noah Show. We record every Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week.